can be seated as we pray together this morning. It all rests on your name, Jesus. There's no one more powerful. There's no one more loving. There's no one more humble. There's no one more kind. And good news for us is there's no one more gracious. So may we receive your grace today. May it compel us to turn toward you, to run toward you, to find the hope, the love that we all need in your arms today. And it's in the strong name of Jesus that we pray these things. Amen. I figured you guys sit down every week, so I'm going to sit down one week, okay? Uh, just full transparency, I'm a little weary this morning because I did a back-to-back -back flight in 24 hours to go to an extended family member's funeral. And uh, so I'm back, I'm here, but I'm sitting on a stool today, so. Well, how do you feed 5,000 people? Maybe that's a question you haven't asked yourself before. I know I hadn't really before this week. I'd ask myself, how do I feed 180 people at the Kitsap Homes of Compassion Thanksgiving dinner? Or how do we make more food if we run out at the fellowship feast? But never 5,000 people. And the real challenge of feeding 5,000 people, which I'd say there's probably about 100, there's probably more than 150, but if there was 150 of you sitting in here today, then that would be 33 sanctuaries full of, of people just like this to, to feed, just for perspective. But the real challenge of feeding 5,000 people, as unique and foreign as it may seem, could be seen in many other questions that maybe are more familiar, like... How do you run a marathon? How do you have a 50th wedding anniversary? How do you pay off your mortgage? Well, how you answer those questions depends on your perspective, because you might say, well, it doesn't matter how you run marathons because I don't run. <laughs> you may say by careful planning and training and avoiding injury and eating right, or you might say, at risk of being called a smart aleck, every marathon is run the exact same way, one step at a time. Every 50th wedding anniversary is the result of around 18,250 days of commitment, of love and forgiveness lived one day at a time. Every mortgage is paid off one month at a time. As Archbishop Desmond Tutu once said, there's only one way to eat an elephant, one bite at a time. Do you have any elephants that you're trying to eat? Do you have any challenges, any problems, any impossibilities before you today? If you do, you are not alone, and this passage in Luke chapter 9 is for you. So let's turn there and read together verses 10 through 17. Matthew, Mark, Luke, there it is. 
It's about that far through my Bible, if you're struggling like me to find it this morning. So Luke 9, starting in verse 10. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. They're just returning from their first short-term mission trip, if you will. Jesus had sent them out to do ministry. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned of it, they followed him. And he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now, the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowds away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all of these people. For there were about 5,000 men. I'm going to keep using the number 5,000 because it's round, but that probably meant there was more like ten to 12,000 total people in the crowd, uh, women and children all included. So there were about 5,000 men, and he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and, he, and had them all sit down, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd, and they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. This is the word of God. Well, it, it is important, I think, uh, how our story begins with the disciples returning from, from this, uh, this mission trip that Jesus had sent them out on. He, he had called them together. He had given them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And so, they go out, and they've been out for a, um, an amount of time we don't know, but they come back, and if you've ever been on a short-term mission trip, when you come back, you know just how tired you are and how ready you are to sleep in your own bed. And so Jesus, as they come back, he wisely withdraws with them to a smaller town nearby, but the crowds of people from these surrounding villages who had been experiencing this ministry of the 12 disciples, healing, curing of diseases, people hearing the proclamation of the kingdom of God, they find out where Jesus and the disciples are, and then they follow them there. And Jesus, being who he is and knowing that his disciples are tired and weary, provides a kind of buffer between the crowds. And we're told he welcomes them and continues to minister to them the same ministry we're told that the 12 have been doing. He spoke to them about the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. People were coming looking for more. The disciples were weary. And so Jesus continues to minister to uh, presumably a much larger crowd than they had at all before. But it's in the, the next verse, verse 12, when conflict begins to arise. Luke gives us a little wink into just how exhausted the disciples were at this point when he says, now the day began to wear away. There are days after my kids go to sleep, I don't care if the dishes are cleaned up or if the soup on the stove 
It says, spoils before the next morning. I don't care if the coffee gets made. I don't care if any toys get picked up. I just want to send all my problems away to another village and go to sleep. <laughs> it was that kind of day for the disciples. So they come to Jesus and give him a solution to the problem that he is clearly unaware of. You know, He's like preaching and preaching and preaching and he just keeps going. And they're like, do you see what time it is? We don't, we don't know anything about like that here. Or anything. Just kidding. <laughs> And so they come to him and say, why don't you send these people away to get something to eat? There's a lot of places around. They can go and stay there. And he says something that is the most puzzling and seemingly absurd. It really does seem absurd. He says, you give them something to eat. Now, at this point, we re I really think there's a little sarcasm and probably snarkiness from the disciples. They say, well, we don't have any more than five loaves and two fish unless we're supposed to go and buy food for all of these people. You know, we just came back from a trip on which you told us verbatim, take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money. Would you like for us to buy them food, Jesus? What are you talking about? So why would Jesus tell them to do something he knew they didn't have the resources for? Why would he tell them to do something that was seemingly absurd, like feed 5,000 people with the food that you don't have and the money that you don't have? Well, I, I think we'll find the answer to that together by just simply walking through how Jesus does feed this group of 5,000 people. So the first thing that he does is, uh, oh, I forgot I had slides in between. Here we go. So the first thing that happens is that the disciples come to Jesus with the problem of feeding, the five, with this problem of feeding the 5,000 plus people. They come to Jesus with it. Now, I've... I've told this story here before, but maybe some of you haven't heard it. When I felt like God was calling me to seminary, I was, I was uh, bitter and a bit of a punk about it towards God for a pretty good while. And so I, I said yes, but a begrudging yes. And so as I began to explore that process, um, I was working with a mentor at the time, and they said, well, uh, where do you think you want to go? I said, I don't know. They said, well, how do you think you want to pay for it? I said, also don't know. I've told God that he called me to go to seminary, and if he wants to pay for it, then he can, but I, he knows I don't have the money to pay for seminary. And they marveled and said, wow, you have a lot of faith. And I said, well, that's one thing you could call it. <laughs> well, it came about that I, I said, okay, I'll apply to a few places, and uh, well, really just one at the time I decided I was going to go to Asbury. And about, uh, I remember the day I was at my parents' old house where I grew up, and my phone rang, and this mentor said, I wanted to see if you had made any progress on your, you know, this journey. And I said, well, I applied, like I did. And, and she said, I have something that's happening that I wonder if you had been, has been being prayed into existence. That was the word she used. Well, come to find out, there was a gentleman by the name of Eddie Bigby, 
who was a part of the church uh, there in my hometown. And he hadn't been able to attend for health reasons for a long time, but his wife had passed away, and they had always wanted together to send someone to seminary. He was Methodist, she was Catholic, so they wanted to send someone through each of those respective processes to be a pastor. I was in, the, in a Methodist church at the time. And so the long story short is that Eddie Bigby uh, gave $50,000 to a trust for me and all of my seminary was paid for. Uh, and God was like, yeah, okay, sounds good. I told you to go, I'll pay for it. Looks like you're gonna go. <laughs> You know, at that time, that was a huge, it was an insurmountable problem. It was just like, I don't, you know, you look at, well, what does it cost over time? And I don't have anything close to that, you know, anything close to that. I have a broke down Ford Ranger pickup. That's about the, all I have to my name right now. But I think there is something, even in my, even in my sarcastic way of coming toward God and saying that in the, I, I resonated with that with the disciples that they do come to Jesus with it. They do in a way put the burden back on God and say, do you know how impossible this is? And so if, if you're facing something that feels as wild and absurd as trying to feed 5,000 people, you can bring it back to God you can put the burden back on God, and you can do it more gracefully than these disciples, and I did too. <laughs> but they come to Jesus with the problem of the feeding of the 5,000 people, and they may have the wrong attitude, but I think they got that part right. So the next thing that happens is that Jesus takes their focus off what they can't do and shows them something that they can do. So they reply, uh, you know we don't have the money and food. We don't have the resources to feed this group. And then Jesus says, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. He meets them where they are and he gives them something that they actually can handle. Divide this big crowd of people up into groups of about 50. Now the miracle needed is just as big as it was before, 50 times 100 groups, if there's 100, uh, if there's 100 groups of 50, that's still 5,000. But having the disciples divide them into groups was, was twofold, I think. One was, very practically, once it came time to distribute food, there was only 100 groups to distribute to. It would be easier, much easier to keep track of, well, okay, that group has bread and fish, but this group doesn't. Okay, I'll get the one in the back. Twelve disciples, a hundred groups, so they've got, what, about seven groups each? A couple of them have eight. All of a sudden, this massive problem has been divided up into a little bit smaller problems but, and to facilitate the miracle that's about to happen. But I also think the, that Jesus was making this impossible task feel more possible by getting their focus off the enormity of it and on something that they could do right in front of them. Something that was actually, they could actually accomplish. They're overwhelmed by the size of the crowd, the enormity of the problem, the impossibility of its solution. We're here in a desolate place, meaning we don't have any resources to even meet this need. There's towns nearby that towns can meet this need. 
And we don't all have a crowd of 5,000 to feed, but my guess is we all know the feeling of facing something so overwhelming that it's just paralyzing in its enormity. And Jesus shows us that he, he wants to encourage us to work with him and to empower us in the process. He's like, yes, he's the one doing the miracle, but he invites us into it, and I love that. It reminds me of, of Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30 in the message where Jesus says, walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. Walk with him and work with him. But by simply getting them up, getting them up, moving in the right direction, I wonder if Jesus is showing us that sometimes the only way to see the end of something, perhaps even the next step is to take the first one. There are some things that we will never know how it's going to work out until we just start the process. There was a quote that, that Jeremy shared with me this week that I love that really, I think, hones in on this idea of it says, there is one elementary truth, the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans, that the moment one definitely commits oneself, then providence moves too. Whatever you can do or dream you can do, begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. Sometimes just starting something is the way to finish it. We have to be willing to take the first step and they, they, that Jesus gives us. Jesus then gives thanks for the bread and the fish that they do have. It says that he broke it and blesses it, but it would have been of, he looks up to heaven, he would have broken the bread, it would have been a prayer of thanksgiving. And in looking up to heaven and blessing the food they do have, Jesus is acknowledging and availing himself to the resources that no one else seems to see. And it's the resources that he finds in his Father, the spiritual resources. And in doing so, he, it doesn't guarantee necessarily, it's not like a prescription, like, well, okay, open myself up to God and spiritual resources and then all physical, natural problems work themselves out. It could be that, though. It could be that, though. It doesn't immediately happen in this moment, but it does, I think Jesus is showing us that we do need to stay connected to the source of our spiritual resources, of love, of joy, of peace, of hope, of patience. There's a story that it just happened this morning, and I just want to say up front, I'm getting energized. Okay, I'm going to put my stool back here. <laughs> okay. It's a bit of a weird story. I'm just going to say that out front, but, but I, f I felt like I was supposed to tell it. So I had a very long trip. I got into SeaTac uh, about 11 o'clock last night, drove home. So thinking about this morning, preparing, so go to sleep. And I woke up about 5.30 this morning and just felt horrible, horrible. Um, tired, exhausted, but I had this just knot in my stomach. 
And, and I also hesitated to tell this story because some of you might be like, that was reckless to come to church because it sounds like I'm sick, but I think there's a bigger arch to the story. I hope you can see. So I, I vehemently hate throwing up, okay? I just hate it. I'm the kind who, when you, you know the feeling, you're just like, it's coming, like it's going to happen. Stomach bug, whatever, it's going around. And I fight it. I fight it for hours, you know? I'm like, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. Even though in the end, it's like throwing up will make you feel better, even though it's horrible to go through, right? So I'm laying there for like 30 minutes like, oh, no, is this that? What happened? Do I have food poisoning? This is horrible. So I finally get up. I go downstairs. And, but it wasn't like I just, it was just going to happen, so I tried. I tried to make it happen. I thought, this will make me feel better. I'm going to do it. And it wouldn't happen. It was like, great. I tried, and it won't happen. Can't throw up. Go back upstairs. Lay, lay in bed. Roll around. Meg brings me some ice water. She said, do you want me to get you a cold rag? Yes, that'll be good. Nothing is, nothing's helping. I can't sleep at this point. It's just like this knot in my stomach coming and going, this nausea. So I'm wrestling back and forth. Like, can I can I preach today? It's a horribly late time to tell Jeremy that I can't. <laughs> um, you know, I made it back after this trip, and now this is what's going to take me down. And so I, I said, well, I'm going to try to uh, take my temperature. Do I have a fever? Okay, no fever. What's going on? So I say, okay, I'm just going to take a shower and see if I feel better. And I'm in the shower, and I'm just like, I just have a thought that I think was from God that was, the thought that came in my head was, I feel like I'm literally living out what I'm about to preach this morning, right now. I feel so ill, there are no other explanations for it. I can't even, I can't even, like, make myself sick to feel better. I can do nothing to get, make myself feel better. And when I, when I had that thought, there was immediately an emotional release. When I, it was just like, yeah, what resources are you going to rely on? What resources are you going to rely on? So I still feel horrible. I get out of the shower. Meg comes up. I'd, I'd asked her to make me some tea and lemon in it, peppermint tea. And, and I said, will you just pray for me? Because I don't know why this is happening, and I don't know what's going on. Like, I've been sick a hundred times in my life, but I, it's not that. I don't have a fever. And I said, will you pray for me? And so I'm just laying on my bathroom floor, and Meg is praying for me, and she starts praying, and, and I, like, I feel things start to happen. Like, I feel like a spiritual component. There's an emotional release for me. And then what was crazy is she's halfway through a prayer, and I said, Move, I have to throw up. <laughs> and I did, and it was gone. And it was gone. And I just wondered, like, why would Jesus ask them, why would he ask them to feed these 5,000 people when he knows he doesn't have the resources? Because I think he wanted to, to see where are they going to look for help when they don't have what it takes? Where are they going to look for the resources that they don't have? Because there are 
problems and challenges and struggles that we're all facing that we do not have the resources to meet on our own. And there are physical components to it. Like I was physically sick. There was actually only five loaves and two fishes, but there's also spiritual components to things as well. It's not to say, well, it's just physical or even to say what happened to me, whatever it was, I'm still like, was I in the second Corinthians 12 messenger in my flesh kind of thing, but God did remove it this time. I mean, I'm still kind of freaking out about it if I'm being totally honest, but it wasn't only spiritual because it's like prayer started happening and then things started happening physically, right? But it was to say there was a spiritual component of it. And I think Jesus is, is asking them this question and saying, where do you look for your resources in times of need? In moments of doubt and depletion and weariness, we have to remember that there are more resources available to us than just what we can see. And there's more struggles and battles going on also than what we can see. You can call on help from God and God will be there to help. He will be there to help. And Jesus is modeling for us this conviction that we live in a world of scarcity. We live in a world where there, there is enough, but it doesn't get to all the right places. And so we all are forced to say, well, I'm going to have to look out for me and mine, because if I don't, who will? That was the very first sin, if you will, was to begin to think, did God really say that you couldn't eat from any of the trees? It was a lie, but it was a twist on more than just which tree or what trees. It was, does God really have your best interest in mind? Can he be trusted? And Jesus is, is in turning and breaking the spread and looking up to heaven, he's saying, I'm acknowledging that there is a generous creator and host of this world and life that can be trusted. And what's really wild is that God's plan was actually for us to take advantage of his generosity, which really rubs, rubs the wrong way sometimes. He, be, he said, I'm gonna give you a gift to show you that even in the scariest and scarcest of moments of death, I can bring about life. I have the resources to bring about even life from death. And as Paul said in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave up him up for us all, will he not also not give with him graciously to us all things? Meaning, Look at Jesus and you can answer the question, no, God is not holding out on you. He's not holding out on you. Jesus' father is the God of abundance. He's the God of generosity and he's saying, where will you look for your resources? Will you trust him? Will you trust him? And lastly, in a very profound way, I Notice that somewhere after that, the miracle happens. And I, I don't know where the miracle happens. It says that Jesus breaks the bread, he prays, then he puts it before the disciples, and then the next thing that we're told, uh, well, he broke the blows, gave it to the disciples to set before the crowd, and the next thing we know, they all ate 
and we're satisfied, and they're picking up the leftovers. So, I, I mean, I've been thinking about this a lot. Okay, so Jesus has, they bring him the bread and the fish, and then, like, he breaks some of the bread, and then he gives it to the disciples. There was no, like, giant, you know, airdrop crate, like, 5,000 loaves! <laughs> It's like they start passing it around, and somewhere it just keeps multiplying. I don't know if it was like every person who passed it, like the piece, you know, like whatever piece they weren't looking at, like grew in their hand, or, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's kind of funny to think about, but we're not told, and I kind of wonder if that's the point entirely is to say that Jesus makes this miracle happen in the very doing of it with him. Like, I just imagine, like, okay, they're like, all right, I got eight groups and, like, a little bit of bread and fish. Like, okay, whatever, dude, you're running the show, you know? And, and they're passing it out and passing it out, and then here in a minute, it's like, wait, was that? That was the last group. You know, like, it happened. They, they all ate and were satisfied. And we don't, I don't know how it happened, and I don't know when I happened, when it happened, but I think the point is just to say I, we know the one who made it happen. And I wonder if, if there will be, like, yes, we want to pray and ask for moments where just, like, things can just change like that. But it's in the going about of things with God and working them out that we may also just be like, oh my goodness, it, it did happen and I don't even know when it did or I don't even know how it did, but you will know the one who's responsible for it. And we can give him thanks when we see it. In, uh, as the prayer and worship teams come, there was a, we were talking in the, in the office this week, I was kind of processing the sermon and it came to mind uh, uh, something that Debbie does with the kids uh, whenever she's trying to get them all organized and stuff. And some of you may have heard her say this, but I thought it was a wonderful image. She'll say, one, two, three, eyes on me. And then they'll say, oh, some of you clapped. There's another one right there too. And then they'll say, one, two, eyes on you. To let her know they're, they're looking. You have my attention. So can we just do that? Not to me, but can we just all do that together like Jesus is just saying, like, hey, you can come to me with your problems. You can turn your focus to me. Like, I'm going to tell you the one next thing that you could do just to take a step to get out of being stuck in whatever this thing might be. One, two, three, eyes on me. One, two, eyes on you. May you just turn your eyes towards him. May you come to him with whatever it is and let him lead you forward in it. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that we can come to you with anything, with any problem of any nature. We can lay our burdens before you. We can cast our anxieties on you because you care for us. May you open our eyes to the infinite resource of the Holy Spirit that you have given to us. You are the God who's able to meet spiritual and physical needs. But may we not forget the, the resource that we have, the spirit you've poured out in our hearts. And may we be reminded constantly 
by that voice of your Holy Spirit in us, we can trust you. May you deepen our trust in you today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we go today, I just offer this prayer as a blessing, and may you receive it as we go. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations, forever and ever. Amen.